Welcome to the RPGBot.podcast. I'm Randall James, and with me, let's let's see, let's see. All right, we got Jamar Chase, we got Chase from Paw Patrol, we got Chase Daniel, Jessica Chastain, and we got Chase Rice, Chevy Chase, and we got Tyler Kamstra. Hi, everybody. And Ash Eli. Wow, this is a star-studded cast we got on RPGBot. <laughs> right, right. Hey, guys, uh, just, just sit in the corner and don't talk. That, that's great. <laughs> we'll just have you here for clout. No, <laughs> How did you hey. manage to talk a CGI dog into attending this one? Offered a milkshake. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Ash, what are we doing tonight? So we are talking about chases in D&D and in tabletop role-playing games in general. So oh. chases, yes. Thought, okay, chases. <sighs> I mean, you brought multiple chases. So <laughs> You did bring multiple chases. You didn't know that this was going to backfire on you? anyway so chases are uh something that isn't really used all that often in fifth edition and other you know classic D D type systems like pathfinder which is a shame because i think that they can add a lot of dramatic flair and a little bit of suspense and adrenaline to your game especially if you're going to be doing a horror style game sometimes you need to be able to flee yeah absolutely I and mean, we talk about it all the time right uh both pathfinder and DD, it's a power fantasy uh it just isn't very often that your dm or gm is going to introduce you to a fight that you can't win and so it's not often that you want to run away from something uh and folks just generally don't love to embrace the mechanics for chasing something for actually getting after something if anything I'm just going to let it get 120 yards off and I'm going to pick it off with spells until it's out of range and then give up. So I guess the DM didn't want me to talk to that person because the DM had that person run away. Uh, <laughs> we, we talked about last year when we did the horror episode, the idea of like when you want to build suspense, not being able to fight your way out of it. The fact that when you enter combat, any terror, any apprehension you had about the situation is a lot of times kind of out the window. Uh, And now it's replaced with like maybe fear for your character at best, but you really can't build up that primal concern. And that's where chases are really strong because if you can structure this where it's a little mechanical, there's some randomness to it, but it isn't the combat you're normally used to. And there is danger uh, either in losing your quarry or, or getting, you know, eaten by a giant crocodile or a giant, giant crocodile as it might be. Yeah. That's a lot more interesting. Yeah. So, why why use a chase? Uh, I think that uh, Randall really touched on that. You need uh, creating a sense of danger for your players, making it feel like, oh, they can't handle every combat that's put in front of them, which makes sense. And, you know, ca- even catching like a, if you can't convince your players to run from an enemy, maybe chasing down another one, which can also be kind of fun, especially in a sort of Indiana Jones or uncharted sort of way where you're chasing the bad guy who's got the artifact through the streets of the desert city, which could be a lot of fun and it can make the world feel more threatening and alive. And also it's a challenge other than combat, which is always welcome because it seems like a lot of times in D and D there are two modes, there's role play and there's combat and Somewhere along the way, we have some skill challenges, but not as much. So this is a sort of combat-adjacent system that you can use. But let's talk about the different kinds of systems. So let's talk about first the system in 5th edition. So the the one in 5th edition is described in the DMG, uh, and it's pretty bare bones. Like a lot of things in 5th edition, it's mostly sort of like you decide how this works. We'll give you some stuff and then go for it. So the way it works is there are several different steps. So we'll start with step one. Step one is you need to determine the starting position of the quarry and the pursuer, um, which makes sense. You need to know how far apart they are. If they're right next to each other, then there's no point in running a chase. So because they've caught each other. And then you need to decide initiative, which uh, can either be a continuation of the initiative that you had for a combat that you're now turning into a chase, or you roll initiative as per normal. So each participant in a chase can dash a number of times per chase equal to three plus their constitution modifier. Uh, If you want to take more dashes than this, you can, but it requires a DC 10 constitution 
check to avoid exhaustion. And I believe that is a check, not a saving throw. That's weird. There's so few of those. I know. Man, that means um, bards are really good at this for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that makes a lot of sense. I feel like bards get chased a lot. Uh. <laughs> And, and so what you called out, right? So you get three plus your con modifier for free throughout the course of the chase. And then after that, it's going to start accruing a cost. Yes. So after second level of exhaustion, we start to take disadvantage on that con check. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Once a participant reaches five levels of exhaustion, which they you get an exhaustion point if you fail this check. Jeez. So you can still dash, but you will get an exhaustion point. So once a person reads, uh, uh, reaches five exhaustion points, they are automatically out of the chase. Uh, there's nothing more that they can do. Now, granted, when they hit six, they're dead. So <laughs> yeah, you can yeah. stop it's- just short of running yourself to death. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, you can also attack during your chase round, but you cannot dash if you're doing that. And so it is very disadvantageous for you to do that because of the next participant will know that you tried to attack them, whether they succeeded or failed, um, and then can use your dash to gain an advantage uh, distance on you. Hey, I want to call it out. What I said was wrong, and it's even more interesting, though. Your first level of exhaustion, disadvantage on ability checks. Ah. All right. Your second level of exhaustion, your speed is halved. Mm-hmm. that is not going to make you a good chaser. Nope. <laughs> and it's not going to make you a good uh, chasey. Yeah. So you really only, you want to use your dashes. The, the point of this is you want to use your dashes conservatively, especially if you are someone who has low con, low constitution or even negative constitution, which why would you do that to yourself? Um, but if you have low constitution, you're not going to be able to run very much. And you really shouldn't push yourself further than that. The only people who should be trying to do this, like do more dashes than they can, are people who already have good constitution anyway. And they're going to have a ton of dashes, so they won't ever need to make this check. So realistically, you probably shouldn't be making this check (laughs) if you're smart, unless things are really desperate. If you're the squishy wizard, push it. (laughs) Yeah, that's a little crazy, though, that like, you get so few dashes before you start getting exhaustion because things that give you exhaustion are like starving, long-term dehydration, extreme heat, like forced marches for several hours. Like that's crazy that you can go from perfectly fine to five levels of exhaustion in like five turns. Yeah. To almost dead. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, and what I will say for this though, is that we think about the mechanics of actually executing this. Uh, let's say I have a con modifier of two. I get five free dashes, which means before I even have to worry about exhaustion, we have done five rounds of this chase. Yeah. So you're just going five rounds of everyone keeping pace with each other, assuming everyone has the same speed, just to say like, okay, who who still has a dash left? Okay, we're going to constitution checks. And And at that point, I still have a positive modifier, so I'm still more likely to succeed than not. Um, so it's only until you get to that maybe sixth round in the example that we're giving that things even get interesting on the flip side. And I do like this. If the quarry succeeds and members of the party begin to fail, that half speed is going to kill you. Like you are not going to be able to keep up. You have basically lost at this point. And so it, it kind of sets a cap for what we're going to deal with. If the quarry generally has a higher constitution statistically, most likely the quarry is going to get away, and this isn't going to go beyond maybe eight or nine rounds. Yeah, and uh, it seems that the way that this system is set up is that they don't think that the chase is going to last very long. So extended chase sequences are are kind of discouraged in this system, and which makes sense, but um, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, in terms of rounds of combat versus rounds of chases, this is gonna the rounds of chases are gonna go by much faster. Yeah, because that's fair. there's really realistically only two things you can do: you can either move or dash. And then if you want to attack, I don't know why you would. You can do that. <laughs> well, and and the reasons you might do something besides taking the dash action would be to. Uh, cast a spell that grants the restrained condition if you're trying to catch a quarry. Right. Or if you're trying to stop something chasing you in, in, in its tracks. 
because potentially that one round might be what gives you, you know, or I guess one round would let the party get away. If what you've cast gives you two or more rounds, you also actually get to gain ground. Yeah. And the, 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 the rules do kind of call that out. Like, um, players could cast, it gives the example of players casting web to sort of slow down their pursuers. I wish it added more examples. Like is throwing a barrel down a free object interaction or is that an action? Can you still dash? Like, what is the barrel an improvised weapon at this point? I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it does it. The whole rules of chases are like maybe half a page. It's it's pretty vague and it's kind of left up to DM interpretation, which is a lot of things in fifth edition. Yeah, I feel like I would be tempted to uh, almost turn this into a skill challenge where it's like I throw the chubby pedestrian down and hope that that becomes a blocker. And it's like the DM has to make that choice of like, okay, I guess. I don't know, make a shove check. Let me look up stats for this random, you know, I, you think about chasings in, in TV. That's what you do, right? You run, you jump through the apple cart. The guy screams, Hey, and then the other person comes around and like pushes them out of the way and keeps going. Uh, you know, I guess this, this is probably like a good segue into complications because yes. these are the examples of complications that you might introduce. Yeah. So the way that complications are dealt with in fifth edition is, uh, at the end of every character's, every participant's turn, you roll a d20. Um, and on a, on a 1 through a 10, you get a complication. So it's, uh, it's basically a 50-50 chance every turn. Basically, if you have a lot of players and a decent amount of enemies, you're going to be getting multiple complications every turn. Um, which is another reason why this probably shouldn't go on for too long, because uh, they only give you 10 op- complications. Uh, well, 20. So there's they have a complication table, random complication table, one for urban environments and one for wilderness environments. And that's that's all you get. <laughs> um, so you get 20 complications. So realistically, you're only using 10 of those based on your setting. And those are going to probably repeat. <laughs> Yeah, and this is where I'll say I, I like the idea of letting the table fall through. So let's say I roll uh, a two for the second time. I might just go down to the three. And if I've already hit the three, I go down to the four. Just so you don't get that. It's like another Apple merchant, really? <laughs> the other thing I'll say, because we talk about, you know, as a DM or GM running this, you want it to go smoothly. You want to keep the tension up. You want to build adrenaline as part of this. So a great strategy for planning a chase would be, you know, whether you do this electronically or on paper, roll these ahead of time and write them out. And while you're at it, if you start getting something monotonous, you know, come up with something on par and just write in like a different idea. It's still random, right? One, it's it's random because it's random. Two, you're still going to have everybody roll initiative live and that's actually going to dictate where each of these things land. Yeah. And that kind of uh, segues into like, what are some of the problems of this system? Uh, And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. It's very nebulous and hard to keep track of. So unless you're writing down and it doesn't, doesn't really give you clear guidelines as to how to track the chases. So you have to keep in mind like the distance between six or eight or however many people that you have uh, positions at any one time, which can get overwhelming fast. Um, so you, if you're going to do this, you have to, you kind of have to homebrew a way to keep track of it because, uh, the book doesn't give you any guidance on that. And the other problem is, is that because fifth edition, basically people use, uh, their, um, speeds are in like, you know, multiples of 30 or 40 or 50 or sometimes 60. That's a lot of distance that you're, you're sort of dealing with. And it's a lot to sort of keep in your mind and think about, uh, it's like, okay, how long is this street? Uh, 500 feet. How ha- how long is 500 feet? Um, so it can be, uh, it just adds to that overwhelming stuff. The other problem is that movement is static in 5th edition. Like your movement doesn't change. The only thing that has a variable to it is those dashes, which definitely adds some variance to it. Um, but you're ultimately going to be running 30 or 60 feet around. I could see some room here for a spreadsheet to uh, to like solve the distance problem, just measure from like some starting line, basically. But mm-hmm. like, if the answer is, hey, yeah, just pull out a spreadsheet, then 
not always a great we've system. already failed <laughs> we've <Yeah>. already failed <laughs> it goes back to that some of the other problems are it goes back to that idea of limited complications like they do encourage you to make your own tables but even so like you're still rolling a d20 and you only get a complication half the time so you really only have the 10 options unless you're like rotating tables um uh, okay, we've done all of the complications on that table, so we're going to go to this table. That's a lot of work, um, especially since you're probably going to be getting most of those by the time the chase is over. Like, you'll probably get all of those. If you're only doing one complication, no repeats, one complication, uh, you're probably going to get every single one of those complications. Well, and I guess what I'm going to call it, the complications are essentially a a narrative statement you know, the Apple merchant, blah, 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 blah. And then the mechanical impact. Um, maybe you're knocked prone, which means you have to spend half your movement to get up next turn. Uh, maybe you have to go around them and you lose 10 feet of movement. You can look at those and you can say, okay, I'm going to use the mechanics, the, the mechanical impact from one to 10, but I'm going to flavor them however I want to. Um, it's gonna, That keeps it simple for the the DM. And for the players, it feels novel. It feels fresh. They're not going to realize that, okay, really, we're only actually getting like three impacts or so. Yeah, for sure. Uh, The major, though, issue, uh, well, the two major issues, though, with the 5e chase rules are, one, it doesn't encourage you to do anything but dash. um, Because trying to take your action to do anything else is a waste of that action because then the next person can take advantage of you using that action to dash ahead of you. Um, so ideally, like, yes, you can conserve your dashes, but why would you? <laughs> like, you would probably want to dash because of the way the system works is that, you know, if you don't dash, the per- next person will see that you didn't dash and will dash. So that's, that's a major issue. So everybody's going to be going realistically going to be dashing every turn. Yeah. I feel like the the rule, the reason that you would do that though, would be like, let's say the quarry moves 30 feet on its turn and, and I'm the chaser mm-hmm. and I have 25 feet of movement. So I know in the game of attrition, I'm going to lose at that point. I might be saying I'm going to cast one of these restraining spells that we talked about, or I'm going to just start trying to kill it now because I know in two turns it's going to be out of my range anyway, and I'm not going to be able to do anything about it. Yeah, for sure. That is that is definitely a way that you can play it. Um, and that's realistically the only way that you can catch up with someone if their speed is higher than you. Because like I said, speed is static. Your quarry is, if your speed ha- is higher, uh, I mean, if your quarry's speed is higher than you, they're just going to be spending every turn dashing. I may have missed this detail. Uh, when does the chase end? So the Ooh, chase ends until one of the the party, one of the sides drops out. So it could either be, you know, when you realistically think it, it's kind of nebulous. It's like when they think that you, when the DM thinks that they've escaped. Uh, one of the solid examples that they do is if the if the quarry breaks line of sight of the the pursuer they can make a stealth check and that's based on the active perception check of the person chasing and if they don't see you then the chase is now over so it's kind of up to you but the biggest biggest knock against the system is the system isn't going to come up because in fifth edition players don't want to run from things now realistically you might have a chase where the players are the pursuers. That is something that I think would probably be pretty common depending on how much you want to interact with this system. But usually in 5th edition, it is a power fantasy and when you are running from something, it is considered to be a defeat for your players and they don't like that. <laughs> That's true. I do want to I want to follow up on Tyler's question. So what about if the pursuer catches the quarry because you know right this isn't freeze tag i I can't just be like okay i have i've reached your space and i have now touched you and you must stay here so i can fight you what's the mechanism there well it does say that uh if the pursuer catches up with the quarry you are now in combat essentially Mm. so you run it like you're in combat okay so that so tabaxi monks everywhere 
<laughs> just uh, someone haste the tabaxi monk. They'll break a land speed record. Every chase is ended. So it's like what two two thousand feet around. It's insane. <laughs> the number keeps going up. People keep finding ways. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure. Like we've broken sixty miles per hour at this point. Yeah, nice. no, they're, they're as fast as cheetahs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would consider that. Cheat, cheat, and I'm not even going to do that joke. It's fine. Um, okay, so you're in combat, but what is to prevent the quarry from just running away again and turning combat back into a chase? And at that point, would it technically be a fresh chase where I get all of my con checks again? Oh, yeah, that's no. a that's a that's something that it doesn't have rules for. So that okay. again would come down to what you as a DM think is fair. Okay. You could say, like, personally, I would probably rule it as if they initiated the chase. It's the same chase because you're still tired. You're still you still have used the dashes that you've used. So, yeah, that's the way I would run it. But if people want to run it differently, that is up to you. And that's something that fifth edition encourages you to do. That that feels like the right answer. And then the other thing that's interesting here is that potentially, like, let's say one member of the party was able to catch them. And the quarry is the the NPC or the enemy in this case. One, the rest of the party still has to catch up. And two, <laughs> some of them may be suffering from levels of exhaustion. Yep. So this could be an interesting way to structure combat on what should be a fairly easy fight. Uh, could be quite complicated because of the fact that you actually set this combat up with a chase. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd like to jump to PF2 a bit because, uh, Randall, you mentioned it would be interesting to have like skill challenges in here. So let's look at PF2 because there's some overlap there. So first difference, um, it uses side initiative rather than everyone rolling individually. Like it, It's very much the players are doing the hard stuff and the antagonists just kind of move along at a steady pace. So you as the GM could say like we're going to have six sections of chase the bad guys move through this at like one section per round and then the players just go as fast as they can Um, and effectively the way you handle that is each stage in the chase is an individual challenge it's some obstacle like you might have to get through a crowd or you might have to like squeeze through a, a narrow doorway or something like that and the players work through that in essentially a skill challenge and it gives some examples in the book i think there's like two full pages of obstacles and like each obstacle is a super tiny stat block so you can define them really quickly but like the players get through the challenges with a skill check uh critical successes get you two successes and you need one success per player so it's pretty easy assuming you're doing skills that you're good at and then just if the players get through the entire chase sequence before the antagonists do then they win the chase whatever that means so like if there's six sections of chase and the players get through it magically in like three rounds somehow then they've caught the bad guys in three rounds and that is the end of the chase so it doesn't it doesn't feel quite as much like there they are i'm right on their tail uh like i think 5e is trying to make it feel but the obstacles and complications feel like a much more significant part of the system than they do in 5e it's like there's some pros and cons to both uh being super fast doesn't matter in chases in PF2, which feels weird because if you're like, I've got a horse and my move speed is like 80, then uh, you feel like that should matter in a chase, but it just doesn't. Yeah, you can't really run the horse across the crowd. <laughs> Watch I'm Not for long, at least. That does, <laughs> that does at least feel a little bit more active and variable than 5th edition does. So yeah, I could see that working pretty well. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It's it's definitely more dynamic than 5e. Um, it feels less like you're just chasing people on a racetrack. But uh, yeah, again, it just feels weird that speed doesn't matter because speed can be yeah. so variable, especially when you bring in like mounts and spells and things like that. Um, yeah. But at, at the same time, though, with the structure of the idea that there is this obstacle or, or there's something that you have to overcome and that's what's preventing you from getting to your quarry. Like being a fast sprinter doesn't necessarily help you work through a crowd because you you actually might be antagonizing the crowd and they're making it harder for you to move. Like your charisma 
may be the biggest thing preventing you from making progress. Um, I don't mean for chases, just in general. <laughs> but but so in in, <laughs> no, in, uh, in 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 this case, it makes sense that you would turn it into a skill challenge. And I guess maybe the argument I was trying to make for 5e is I don't want this to be a skill challenge. I want it to be something else because otherwise I would have given a skill challenge. In this case, the shape of it, uh, the idea that the structure they've added, the idea of the chase points, the idea of like, okay, look, you have to hit so many uh, in order to consider the the bad guy caught. I think that makes sense because now, okay, it isn't that I need to get a certain number of successes. Uh, it is that, okay, no, it's actually is exactly the same, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. fair. Okay. Um, one one of like last big gripe with the pf2 system um, it expects you to pick all of the challenges beforehand and it includes all of those pre-written challenges as examples and it's like here are some examples of things to pass this like a specific number dc for a skill check they could very easily have said like here's all the templates for these obstacles and use like a standard dc for the player's level and like and then that entire system would be very easy to be like okay i need a chase all of a sudden i'm going to pick six of these at random i can fill in the dcs with the chart on the game master's screen and i'm good to go so like very very small editorial improvement to that section of the game mastery guide would have made this system much more usable yeah yeah hopefully hopefully we'll see updates in like future books or something but it's like so close not quite yeah it just feels like both pathfinder and uh fifth edition have just kind of accepted yeah chases aren't really a thing in our games <laughs> and haven't really <laughs> thought too much about them all right, so I'll pose a question. Has anyone seen a chase system they really like? Yep. <laughs> now, I'm going to talk about the chase system in Call of Cthulhu. Now, I personally like this system. I understand that it's not for everyone. So take it with a grain of salt. Uh, but strap in, because this gets complicated. <laughs> um, it's not that complicated like once you get a handle on it like it's pretty intuitive but explain it can be a little bit complicated so it does require a little bit of prep but you can still kind of improvise chases the way movement works in in call of cthulhu is that it's determined by a stat that you have so it's not determined by your race or your class is determined by you know i think it's like your constitution plus your decks essentially and they are using yards instead of feet for movement. I know it's weird, um, but so you, it you does just mean that one to one with meters. I guess that yeah, kind of like that. But basically, it it does the advantage that it does have is that you're working with smaller numbers, um, which definitely helps. So there's a few steps that we got to follow in order to set up our chase. So the first is you determine your starting movement speed, and no. It is not the movement speed on your character sheet. So every participant in the chase rolls a constitution check. If they succeed, great. You get to use your full movement. If you fail, your movement is reduced by one. If you do what's called an extreme success uh, or in, in uh, D&D terms, a critical success, then your movement increases by one. Now, this is... Uh, important because the next step is we calculate the number of chase actions that every participant gets. So the way that we do this is you take the, the participant who has the lowest movement speed and you reduce their movement speed to one. Then you reduce everybody else's movement speed by the same amount that you reduced that person's. So that's really confusing, but let me explain. So let's say <laughs> that um, uh, I, I'm uh, running from a deep one, uh, which is a classic HP Lovecraft monster. My movement speed is eight. The monster's movement speed is seven. So he's got a lower, lower movement speed than me. So his chase actions are reduced to one. Because I reduced his movement speed by six, I also reduce my eight movement speed by six. So I have two chase actions um now 
you can stop there if you want to. Call of Cthulhu basically says if the it, uh, anybody who has higher movement speed is going to get away, so just describe how they get away. You can do that, but that's not fun. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that people have suggested is that if the difference between the lowest and highest is less than three, run the chase because there's still a possibility that they can catch up. So the next per the next thing is you map the chase. And this is where keeping track of the chase becomes a lot easier than in fifth edition. The way that they suggest to do it is you take a line, just a straight line, and you put dots on that line. Each dot represents a scene on the chase. So a good example is like each dot, if you're in a house running away from a monster, like say a ghost or something, each dot on the line represents a different room. Or if you're running across a field, each dot represents a different part of that field. Like maybe the first dot represents, you know, you running across the field. The second dot represents you going through uh, uh, a Climbing farmhouse. the levee? Yeah, that too. Or and then the third dot is like you go running through the forest, uh, like basically change of geography. Basically, it's like dramatic sort of stuff. So you don't have to keep first off. You don't have to keep track of any of the movement speed. None of that. You're just keeping track of basically beats in the chase, which is easier to handle and it makes it more dramatic. Then between each of the dots, the and the thing about it is that the space between the dots doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how far away each dot is. It can be nebulous. They can be a few feet away or they can be a mile away. It really just kind of depends on what makes sense for your chase. Yeah, I guess this this kind of feels like it reminds me. I think when we talked about the alien RPG, I think they had a rule set which was like, okay, you know, the the room next door is like a unit of space away from you. And if you were in a very large chamber, you might say that it's two units of space. But it wasn't this idea of like, let's measure everything in meters, feet, or yards. It was just that, yeah, when you move from one section to the next section, we call that moving a room. And if it's two rooms over, then it's two rooms over. And it doesn't matter how big the rooms are. It kind of feels like that. Yeah. And so the important part comes between the spaces, which is where we get hazards and barriers. And you can either have these pre-planned if you have this chase planned in advance, or you can uh, roll randomly to see, it's like a percentage chance to see whether there's a hazard or a barrier. Hazards are described as anything that impedes your movement but doesn't stop it. Some Like, you know, uh, you're walking through a, a swamp, like a... Uh, you're gonna keep gonna be able to keep moving, but your movement speed might be slowed if you don't make the check. Whenever you want to move from one dot to the next, if there's an obstacle there, you first have to overcome that obstacle. If you fail, your chase actions might be reduced by one d three. So to go back, if I want to move two spaces away from the creature that's chasing me. Normally, I would just use my two actions from the previous example to move two spaces. But let's say between the first and the second space, there's a tar pit. So I have to roll like a strength check. I fail. So the DM, the keeper, rolls a D3, and I lose three actions on my next turn. So I essentially have to give up one of my actions this turn um, to pay for that debt that I have. So I'm now I've gotten past that obstacle, but I cannot do anything else the next round because I still have to pay that two extra actions, which gives the people behind me a chance to catch up. So to compare that to like 5e or Pathfinder or something, this would be like I'm stuck in an obstacle. I need to spend my action on my next turn to get out of that obstacle so I can continue the chase. Correct. And barriers uh, st- will stop your movement. So a locked door, uh, a crevasse. So there are two ways that you can handle barriers. You can either try to find a way around it, in which case the uh, the book suggests that you just draw a separate line with more dots. So that could also slow your movement. So instead of going from taking uh, going from one dot to the next, now I have to go three dots to get to the next one on the line. So that gives them a chance to catch up. You can also spend your chase actions to give yourself bonuses to your checks if you so choose. So instead of moving forward, you can spend as many actions as you want to give yourself more bonuses. And you can also use it to impede another person. So let's say, I don't want to bust down this door. I want to try to lockpick it. I want to give myself a bonus, and then I want to try to lock it behind me so that the creature can't follow. 
So that is something that you can use. But yeah, essentially, that's that's all it is, is that uh, characters will be using their actions to move down the line or uh, overcome obstacles. Now, things get really interesting when we're talking about vehicle chases because there are vehicles in Call of Cthulhu. There's There's cars, there's planes, all that stuff. So cars obviously can move. You're not doing anything different in terms of calculating how many chase actions. It's based on the speed of the car rather than your speed. But with a car, you can additionally use your action to floor it. Uh, Accelerate or floor it is basically what it is. So if you accelerate, you can move like two to three um, spaces uh, extra than you normally would be able to, um, depending on if you, how well you succeed on the drive check. If you floor it, then you can move four to five spaces. But the flip side to that is you now have a penalty to dealing with any obstacles or barriers in your way. But the advantage is that if you have passengers with you, like other party members, they don't have to use their actions to move. So they can, because they're with the car, so they can use their actions to attack, to fire. Uh, and one passenger can help with the penalties by giving you navigation checks. And so they can possibly take away some of those penalties or give you a bonus, depending on how the, the, the keeper chooses to run it. But yeah, so that that's that's car chases. But the cool thing about car chases, and it's something that you could probably do with on foot chases as well, but it only really says this for car chases. And the thing that I really like are what called sudden hazards. And sudden hazards are like, you know, oh, the sweet old lady is crossing the street. I have to roll to not hit her and stuff like that. <laughs> so on any given turn, either the player or the keeper can ask for a luck check and because luck is a stat in call of cthulhu if the keeper is asking the players to make the luck check then the hazard will affect the players it will affect their their movement or impede their movement somehow if the players are asking for the luck check then it will affect whoever their enemies are impede them now the key to the system so that doesn't get abused is once a player or a keeper asks for luck check they cannot do it again until the opposing side asks for a luck check. So it's a bit like the the force points meta currency in uh, Star Wars RPG. Um, now you, yeah. you called it a check. Like, do you roll something for this, or is it just yeah. like automatic? So the way that the way that checks work in Call of Cthulhu, the way the stats work is you have. Uh, it's based on a D100 system, so you have a percentage chance. So the higher your percent, the higher your number is on your stat, the easier it is to make the check because you're trying to roll under your stat. So let's say I have an 80 con and I have to make a con check. I have to roll 80 or below in order to make it. You divide that number in half for your hard check, which gives you like you know for harder tasks or to succeed better, you have to roll under for our example under 40 to pass a hard check. An extreme check is half of that number. So I would have to roll under a 20 to get an extreme check. So a one in five. Uh, my math might be off. Yeah, my math might be off on that, but I believe that's how it works. So luck is one of the main attributes. So like like in uh, uh, D&D where you have, you know, your con, wisdom, intelligence, charisma. Uh, Call of Cthulhu has knowledge, constitution. Uh, I don't remember some of the other ones, but luck is one of those attributes. You don't want to ignore it. A lot of people do, but luck can really help you out in Call of Cthulhu. Like it can make a lot of difference for you. And this is one of those cases. So when you're calling for a luck check, monsters also have a luck stat. As a as the keeper, you're trying to roll under the luck check. And if they succeed, if the luck check succeeds, then the hazard for the players comes into play. Got it. And vice versa. But uh, the other thing about this is even on foot, you can and are encouraged to attack. Because uh, Call of Cthulhu has firearms, you can stand still and shoot, which is just a straight shot, but you cannot move. Or you can fire while moving, which doesn't sacrifice any of your movement. You're just going to get a penalty to your attack. Which seems worth it. If you plan on fleeing anyway, you might as well pop a shot off. 
Yeah, exactly. And if you're in a car and there's this monster chasing you, <laughs> you you can use all your actions to just attack. Uh, you don't have to because the driver is the only one who has to use their actions to move. Okay, and then can they fire like a free shot out the window too? They can, yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, but they're gonna get a, they're gonna get a penalty for sure, especially depending on how fast they're moving. No, that now, makes perfect sense. Hopefully, they don't shoot their friends. <laughs> I mean, now, if you want to be a jer- jerk keeper, you could do it that way. Yeah, I've been in Stranger Games. Uh, <laughs> now, considering the things you're facing in Call of Cthulhu, if you're running away from it, is stopping to shoot at these things usually a good idea? Or is that like I'm just stalling for time and hoping that I get away? The latter. <laughs> okay. uh, I mean, you're, you're not always fighting against eldritch horrors. Sometimes you're fighting against cultists and sometimes ah. shooting can be helpful. Cultists famously not bulletproof. <laughs> yeah. But against eldritch monsters, you're not doing much to them. You're you're just hopefully slowing them down. That's kind of it. As you uh, take damage in Call of Cthulhu, your speed also goes down. The thing that works about this system is in Call of Cthulhu, if you're in combat, you have supremely messed up. <laughs> um, <laughs> unless you're fighting against humans, but even then it is dicey because one good shot from a gun can instantly kill you. That's true. Uh, which is very realistic, but obviously not for everyone because Call of Cthulhu is not a power fantasy. It is absolutely a survival horror. So if you've gotten into a fight, it's because you messed up somewhere. So you are encouraged very much so to run. So you, unlike 5th edition and Pathfinder, you're probably going to be interacting with this system quite a bit. Okay, so I, this makes sense to me. I guess I want to call out some things that I, I think I like from this. So one, we were talking about managing like distances and the idea it's like, okay, well, you have 30 feet, but you dashed and you have 25 feet of movement, but you dashed and my tabaxi over here can move. Ah. Yeah. So this, this feels easier to map because we're just talking about you're going from zone to zone. I get to give you a description of, you know, each zone to each zone. I get to put the hazards and the barriers there. And so, you know, in, in lieu of complications, it's basically, it's like, oh, you've encountered a gate and you must jump over the gate. Give me a dexterity check or whatever it might be called. I like like the nature of having firearms. I think I kind of like that in in the sense that I can I can move my movement, but I can still I can still take a shot. And I'm not mm-hmm. sitting here thinking like, okay, am I willing to give up dash and let them get ahead of me? Uh, I think this makes sense to me. Yeah, and some of the cool things about it is that a vehicle chase can quickly turn into an on foot chase. Uh, a YouTuber I was watching called Seth Gorkowski. Shout out. If you haven't watched him, he's great at explaining Call of Cthulhu if you're looking to get into it. But he talked about a session that he ran where a, his players were running from a monster in a car and uh, they had floored it. And so they didn't see a puddle and it skid and flipped over. The car flipped over. So they got out because uh, it was raining and stuff. So they got out of the car and started to run out into the field they had to jump over a fence the monster still chasing them them taking shots at it and stuff so it was very visceral adrenaline pumping and heart pounding and that sounds very cool and it is something that i think call of cthulhu does extremely well awesome okay so what parts of this could we bring back into uh 5e or pathfinder like what are the things that we think are adaptable Well, I think first off, the thing that we can absolutely take is the idea of the mapping system, like zones and um, just focusing on zones rather than on distance. Doing a full one-to-one conversion of this would take time that we don't have, but it has something that I have considered and tried to make work. But essentially, you have to basically boil down everybody's speed to, okay, how many zones can they move every time? Yeah, and... and Pathfinder 2E kind of does this, right? Like everybody kind of has a a uniform, you move the same distance. And so you could do it in terms of region, or at least, you know, it's a long group of people. And so it's going to be three turns worth of movement or rounds worth of movement to get through it. I think this makes sense, but it's it's probably a huge improvement over what we're doing in 5E. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even with the differences in speed, if you just like if you did some basic math and said like, once you hit such and such speed, your movement gets you through two spaces something like that so like your insanely fast paxi monk can move like four spaces with a single turn worth of movement and then they still get to feel special and you don't have to completely upend the entire system 
Yeah. And something that you could do is just like, okay, anything that's like from 25 to 40 feet of movement, they can probably move one zone a turn. Anything that's like double that can move two zones a turn um, or something like that. Like that is that is just to take the bare bones sort of system. You I think that is a way that you could possibly do it. Obviously, you would probably still run into some issues. But I think if you just wanted, like, I like that map idea. I want to steal that. I think that's an easy way that you could use it. But ultimately, it just comes down to the way that you make it more like the system is if you want to run a game that has chases in it in 5th edition, you need to communicate that. Um, and say, because, like, I, re- I ran for a long time a campaign that I, was a survival horror in 5th edition. And I basically told my players, hey, a lot of the fights that I'm going to throw at you are extremely unfair and you will not survive if you choose to fight them. So I encourage you to run away. And they still didn't a lot of the time, but (laughs) they did. They were more willing to run, especially once like, I I think a really great example of how to do this in fifth edition is in. um, So spoilers for anybody who didn't watch campaign one of critical role. But one of the things that uh, I think Matt did really brilliantly with the Chroma Conclave arc when the dragons invaded Iman, the, the party was introduced to this big, huge dragon. And Grog, the barbarian, was like, okay, I'm going to attack this thing. He rolls to hit it. And he's like, oh, I rolled a 19. And Matt was like, 19 doesn't hit. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, no, we're screwed. We got to get the hell out of here. <laughs> and so I think... Just communicating to your players that they are supremely outmatched. It, that's kind of the only way that you can really push your players into running away is make it clear to the players that these things will destroy you if you choose to stand and fight. If you want to use chases, that's the way that I would recommend doing it in Pathfinder or, or Dungeons & Dragons. I like that a lot. All right, perfect. So we have a question of the week this week. This week, our question of the week comes to us from Sylviance on Discord. What subclass is top of your wish list for one D&D? Well, let's see. So we just got the first round of class updates for one D&D or the playtest versions of the first classes. So we haven't seen a lot of the subclasses. We know that there's currently planned to be 48. So we're going to get a whole bunch of them. From what we've seen, we're almost certainly going to get Battlemaster Fighter and in the first... The first classes under Tharkana document, we got Hunter, Ranger, Lore Bard, Thief, Rogue. So I figure those four are already in there. So let's just let's just assume that those will make it to print. I guess we we probably should have asked a follow up question. Does Sylvian say mean wish list for classes that already exist in Five E that we want to see, or like wish list for new subclasses? What do you guys think? I don't know. I think there's a few ways that you can interpret this this question either. Yeah, uh, which one do you want to see be trans transitions to one D and D, or which one would you like to add, or it could just simply be like, what are you most interested in? How they're going to make how what their changes they're going to make to the subclass in one D and D. So I I have an answer for one version of the the questions that we've just enumerated. So given the changes in mechanics, there's opportunity to create a subclass that just didn't make sense looking at the way things are in 5e. So what I'll call out, you know, it looks like we're going to have these different spell lists that we're not going to have a bard spell list and a warlock spell list. And blah, 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 blah. we're going to have, what are the names that we've seen? Primal, divine and arcane. Okay, cool. So I would be interested to see one of these spellcasters that maybe gets a really cool benefit to reach into multiple spellcasting domains and the opportunities for building characters, because like there's a synergy in, the, in in having spells from each of the domains that I can only create if I take the subclass, for instance. So if we wind up finding ourselves in a situation where most subclasses or even most classes restrain you to only using one domain of magic, I think it'd be really cool to see what they do for the exception to that rule. The playtest version of the lore bard can do that like just the tiniest bit. But I think you're probably thinking some something more along the lines of Divine Soul Sorcerer, where you have access to both the Divine Spell List and the Arcane Spell List. So, like, yeah, seeing more subclasses that are like, no, my thing is I get two full spell lists. 
that would be neat for me um just in terms of like which ones that i want to see more of from uh regular fifth edition i'm really curious to see how they handle the um beastmaster ranger for this version because it's something that they've constantly struggled with and i want to see how they update it (laughs) same (laughs) but also in terms of like things that i would hope i hope they mine some stuff from the older editions like from prestige classes like i think a malconvoker would be super cool for those of you who aren't versed in it uh malconvoker are good demon summoners <laughs> they trick demons into serving them for good purposes which is cool and i think is something that is i would like to see more of in one D. <laughs> you don't get a lot of demon focused classes it seems like demon or devil whatever you <laughs> want to call it so this is great mischief tilling these fields as you've demanded yes wonderful <laughs> mischief keep going Everybody's very happy. <laughs> look how disturbed that earth is yeah the the farmers they're crying tears (laughs) tears of joy but we won't tell them that (laughs) um i i kind of want to see a blaster bard like i i think pf1 had i want to say it was called the dirge singer or something but it was basically like you turn bardic music into effects that deal sonic damage so instead of like Think like a a heavy metal bard that plays an electric guitar and causes things to explode. It's like the guy running at the front of the vehicle in um, Mad Max. Mad Max. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah. I want to be that guy. Perfect. (laughs) All hail the leisure Illuminati. Run away. (laughs) I'm Randall James. You'll find me at amateurjack.com and on Twitter and Instagram at Jack Amateur. I'm Tyler Campster. You'll find me at RPGBot.net, uh, Facebook and Twitter, RPGBOTDOTNET, and Patreon.com slash RPGBot. And I'm Ash Eli. You can follow me on Twitter at Graven Ashes, uh, where I've got a link to the first one shot that I'm running for the week of Halloween. It's October 24th called Escape from the Vanishing Halls. Please check it out. All right. Uh, Jamar, Chevy? No? All right. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make this show happen every week. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at RPGBot.net or message us on Twitter at RPGBOTDOTNET. Please also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll find ad-free podcast episodes, early access to RPGBot.content, polls for future content, and access to the RPGBot.discord. You'll find us at patreon.com slash RPGBot. Uh, I do think Sylveance, by the way, is such a cool name for like a Archfey or something. <laughs>